you under her eye. This podcast is all about women's empowerment and gender equality. We are fucking this month in the patriarchy over here and we are doing that through education because education is so important and this is all brought to you by me in Sandsfield. I am 17 years old. I do not know shit. I do not. Okay. Hey everybody, welcome back to Under Her Eye. Today's episode is, well, I'm going to be reading to you. (laughs) I'm going to read part of the book that I've banged on about in every episode because honestly, I haven't really had time to research something in depth this week because my family's visiting, but I also want to read this to you and I definitely want to do things like this because it's a little book club and then I don't have to worry about getting things wrong as often so yeah it is the book that I'm going to be reading to you well not all of it but snippets from I'm only halfway through so I might do another episode where I do the other half Uh, but it's called invisible women exposing data bias in a world designed for men oh my god my voice and it is by Caroline Criado Perez so I have read the blurb in another episode but I will read it again. So, imagine a world where your phone is too big for your hand. Your doctor prescribes a drug that is wrong for your body. In a car accident, you are 47% more likely to be seriously injured. If any of this sounds familiar, chances are that you are a woman. From government policy and medical research to to technology workplaces in the media, invisible women reveal how, in a world largely built for and by men, we are systematically ignoring half of the population, often with disastrous consequences. Caroline Criado Perez brings together for the first time an impressive range of case study stories and new research from across the world that illustrate the hidden ways in which women are forgotten and the profound impacts this has on all of us. So that is a blurb. Um... I'm going to read you part of the introduction because I just think that's... Well, I'll read you the preface first. Preface? Preface? (laughs) The hell am I? Most of recorded human history is one big data gap. Starting with the theory of man the hunter, the the chroniclers of the past have left little space for women's role in the evolution of humanity, whether cultural or biological. Instead, the lives of men have been taken to represent those of humans overall. When it comes to the lives of the other half of humanity, there is often nothing but silence. And these silences are everywhere. Our entire culture is riddled with them. Films, news, literature, science, city planning, economics. The stories we tell ourselves about our past, present and future, they are all marked, disfigured by a female-shaped absent presence. This is the gender data gap. The gender data gap isn't just about silence. These silences, these gaps have consequences. The impacts on women's lives every day. The impacts can be relatively minor. Shivering in offices set to a male temperature norm, for example, or struggling to reach a top shelf set at a male height norm. Irritating, certainly. Unjust, undoubtedly. But not life-threatening. Not like crashing in a car whose safety measures don't account for women's measurements. 
Not like having your heart attack go undiagnosed because your symptoms are deemed atypical. For these women, the consequences of living in a world built around male data can be deadly. One of the most important things to say about the data the, data, the gender data gap is that is not, it is not generally malicious or even deliberate, quite the opposite. It is simply the product of a way of thinking that has been around for, for millennia and is therefore a kind of not thinking, a double not thinking even. Men go without saying and women don't get said at all because when we say human, on the whole, we mean man. This is not a new observation. Simon de Beauvoir, Simone, I why did it say Simon? Simone de Beauvoir, I think that's right, Simone de Beauvoir, made it most famously when, made it most famously when in 1949 she wrote, humanity is male and man defines woman not in herself but as relative to him. She is not regarded as an autonomous being. He is the subject, he is the absolute, she is the other. What is new in the context in which women continue to be the other? And that context is a world increasingly reliant on an enthralled to data, big data, which in turn is panned from big truths by big algorithms using big computers. But when your data gap when your big data is corrupted by big silences, the truths you get are half truths at best. Why does it keep stop recording? Ugh. Where was I up to? Really disrupting me. Um, but when your big data is corrupted by big sciences, the truths you get are half-truths at best. And often for women, they aren't true at all. As computer scientists themselves say, garbage in, garbage out. This new context makes the need to close the gender data gap even more urgent. Artificial intelligence that helps doctors with diagnoses, that scans through CVs, even that conducts interviews with with potential job applications is already common, but AIs have been trained on data sets that are riddled with data gaps, and because algorithms are often protected as proprietary, proprietary software, we can't even examine whether these gaps have been taken into account. On the available evidence, however, it certainly doesn't look as if they have. Numbers, technology, algorithms, all of these are crucial to the story of invisible women but they only tell half the story. Data is just another word for information, and information has many sources. Statistics are a kind of information, yes, but so is human experience. And so, will I, so I will argue that when we are designing the world that is meant to work for everyone, we need women in the room. If the people taking decisions that affect all of us are all white, able-bodied, nine times out of ten from America, that, that too constitutes a data gap. In the same way that not collecting information on female bodies in medical research is a data gap. And as I will show, failing to include the perspective of women is a huge driver of an unintended male bias that attempts, often in good faith, to pass itself off as gender neutral. This is what de Beauvoir meant when she said that men confuse their own point of view with the absolute truth. The male-specific concerns that men fail to factor in cover a wide variety of areas, but as you read, you will notice that three themes crop up again and again. The female body, women's unpaid care burden, and male violence against women. These are issues of such significance that they touch on nearly every part of our lives, affecting our experiences of everything from public transport to politics, by the workplace and the doctor's surgery. 
but men to get them, because men do not have female bodies. They, as we will see, do only a fraction of the unpaid work done by women. And while they do have to contend with male violence, it manifests in a different way to the violence faced by women. And so these differences go ignored, and we proceed as if the male body and its attended life experience are gender neutral. This is a form of discrimination against women. Throughout this book, I will refer to both sex and gender. By sex, I mean the biological characteristics that determine whether an individual is male or female, XX and XY. By gender, I mean the social meanings we impose upon those biological facts. The way women are treated because they are perceived... Sorry, I was trying to do an italicised voice. (laughs) Because they are perceived to be female. One is man-made, but both are real. And both have significant consequences for women as they navigate this world constructed on male data. But although I talk about both sex and gender throughout, I use gender data gap as an overarching term because sex is not the reason women are excluded from data. Gender is. In naming the phenomena that is causing so much damage to so many women's lives, I want to be clear about the root cause, and contrary to many claims you are reading these pages, the female body is not the problem. The problem is the social meaning that we ascribe to that body, and a socially determined failure to account for it. Invisible women is a story about absence, and that sometimes makes it hard to write about. If there is a data gap for women overall, both because we don't collect the data in the first place and because we don't because when we do we don't we usually don't separate it by sex. When it comes to women of colour, disabled women, working class women, the data is practically non existent. Not simply because it isn't collected, but because it is not separated out from male data. What is called sex disaggregated data in statistics on representation from academy jobs to film roles, data is given for women and ethnic minorities, with data for female ethnic minorities lost within each larger group. Sorry for the noise. <laughs> Where they exist, I have given them, but they are ba- but they barely ever do. The point of this book is not psychoanalysis, and I really wanted to say that right. Is not psychoanalysis. I do not have direct access to the innermost thoughts of those who perpetuate the gender data gap, which means that this book cannot provide ultimate proof for why the gender data gap exists. I can only present you with the data and ask you as a reader to look at the evidence, but nor am I interested in whether or not the person who produced a male bias tool was a secret sexist. Private motivations are, to a certain extent, irrelevant. What matters in this pattern? What matters is the pattern. What matters is whether, given the weight of the data I present, it is reasonable to conclude that the gender data gap is all just one big coincidence. I will argue that it is not. I will argue that the the gender data gap is both a cause and a consequence of the type of unthinking that conceives of humanity as almost exclusively male. I will show how often and how widely this bias crops up and how it distorts the supposedly objective data that increasingly rules our lives. I will show that even in this super-rational world, increasingly run by super-impartial supercomputers, women are still very much de de Beauvoir's second sex, and that the dangers of being relegated to, at best, a subtype of men, are as real as they ever have been. So that was the preface. 
and now I think I'm gonna do like a little a little synopsis a little a little summarization of each chapter or like I'll just read a paragraph from each chapter so that was the preface but then there's an introduction about the default male which basically talks about how men are the default and as Beauvoir said um we are women are the second sex we are the other so that as um Caroline Perez says um seeing men as a human default is fundamentally is fundamental to the structure of human society it's an old habit and it runs deep um as deep as theories of human evolution itself and then it says about so basically it starts off with a collection of like anthropologists talking about man as the hunter which is not true like they assume that like if they find bones of a old warrior or something that it's a male because they were a warrior like in here i don't know what page it's on but it talks about these bones that were found and they were assumed to be male um even though it had it had something in its body like a bone <laughs> that women don't have or that men don't have but it was still assumed to be a male even though it had this bone like what and then they actually found out i think it was oh my god i found it okay even human bones are not exempt from male unless otherwise indicated thinking we might think of human skeletons as being objectively either male or female and therefore exempt from male default thinking we would be wrong for over 100 for over 100 years a 10th century viking skeleton known as the Burka warrior had despite possessing an apparently female pelvis being assumed to be male because it was buried alongside a full set of weapons and two sacrificed horses these graves these grave contents in these grave contents indicate indicated <laughs> that the occupant had been occupant had been a warrior and warrior meant male Archaeologists put the numerous references to female fighters in Viking lore down to mythical embellishments. But although weapons apparently trump the pelvis when it comes to sex, they don't trump DNA. And in 2017, testing confirmed that these bones indeed belong to a woman. So just because they, they assume that Vikings were male and because he, um, the woman's bones were found next to was it arrows? Yeah, a full set of weapons. They assumed that she was a male. Just because of that, even though she had a female pelvis. I think that kind of sums it up. If I'm being honest, I think that really, that really stuck with me. Maybe because it was in the introduction. And I was like, just getting into it. And I was like, what the fuck? Okay, so this next bit is about using, oh my god, using the man in reference to humanity you know and like especially in old texts it will say like mankind like they use man as the that word <laughs> they use as a mean like as humanity which they like it's universally thought to be synop like to be the same as in humanity but this book argues, like, with data, like, it doesn't. Like, people are more likely 
to assume man than humans because you are like I am I hate it when I read man somewhere when when it's referring to humanity or it uses he in a general way like no okay so this bit says um when you say man you don't include women too even if everyone does technically know that numerous studies in a variety of languages over the past 40 years have consistently found that what is called the generic masculine, using words like he in a gender-neutral way, is not in fact read generically. It is read overwhelmingly as male. When the generic masculine is used, people are more likely to recall famous men than famous women. To estimate a profession as male-dominated, to suggest male candidates for job and political appointments, women are also less likely to apply and less likely to perform well in interviews. Fuck off, fly. For jobs that are advertised as using, oh my god, women are less likely to apply and less likely to perform well in interviews for jobs that are advertised using the generic masculine. In fact, the generic masculine masculine is read so overwhelmingly as male that it even overrides otherwise powerful stereotypes, so that professions such as beautician, which are usually stereotyped female, are suddenly seen as male. It even distorts scientific studies, creating a kind of meta-gender data gap. A 2015 paper looked at self-report bias in psychological studies found that women that what that the use of generic masculine in questionnaires affected women's responses, potentially distorting the meaning of test scores. The authors concluded that its use may portray unreal differences between men and women, which would not appear in their gender-neutral form or in natural gender language versions of the same questionnaire so interesting but like why and this talks about french because um this person what are they called she references a lot of other people so as recently oh it doesn't have a name but it claims that the french language finds itself in mortal danger from workarounds from workarounds for the generic masculine other countries including spain and israel have faced similar rows because english is not a grammatically gendered language the generic masculine is fairly restricted in modern usage terms like doctor and poet used to be generic masculine with, with specifically female doctors and poets referred to usually derisively as po- poetesses poetesses and doctoresses but are now considered gender neutral but while the formal use of the generic masculine only really clings on in the writings of pedant, pedants who still... Right, okay, I'm going to read about this because I was getting quite far into it and I want to read some other really interesting parts out. I'm not sure whereabouts it is, so I can't read the exact words, but there is a section talking about children and the perception of... Um, like, it talks about the effects of like schooling on how girls and then women like perceive themselves as they grow up and it talks about how at like the age of three girls are just as likely as boys to want to participate in a activity that's advertised as like you know it's really hyped up like it's called like really intense or something I can't remember the exact words but it's like really hyped up and seen as like kind of hard or just like yeah 
and so they're just as likely at the age of three, I think it was, but then when they get to four, girls are way less likely, like, that just completely proves that the education system is based on this gender data gap, but not just that, just also the conditioning of, not just sexism, but just as women as the other sex, basically. So this says that, okay, this is kind of similar, but not. <laughs> um, decades, so there was, there's been decades of scientific research on draw a scientist where participants overwhelmingly draw men. The bias has historically been so extreme that media around the world celebrated as great progress. A recent paper which found that 28% of children now draw women. It also tallies perhaps more disturbingly with a 2008 study in which Pakistani students aged 9 and 10 who were asked to draw an image of us, hardly any of the female students drew women and none of the male students did. We don't even allow non-humans to escape our perception of the world as overwhelmingly male. When researchers in one study attempted to prompt participants to see a gender-neutral stuffed animal as female by using female pronouns, children, parents and carers still overwhelmingly referred to the animal as he. The study found that an animal must be super feminine before even close to half of the participants were referred to it as she rather than he. To be fair, it's not an entirely unreasonable assumption. Often, it really is a he. A 2007 international study of of 25,439 children's TV characters found that only 13% of non-human characters are female. The figure for female human characters was slightly better, although still lower, 32% more. Okay. So, only 13% of non human characters are female and then 32% of female human characters if you catch my joke <laughs> an analysis of g-rated films released between 1990 and 2005 found that only 28% of speaking roles went to female characters and perhaps even more tellingly in the context of humans being male by default women made up only 17% of crowd scenes men don't just have more roles they also spend twice as much time on screen. This rises to nearly three times as much when, as most films do, the film has a male lead. Only when the lead is female do men and women appear about as often as each other, as opposed to women getting, as you might expect, the majority of screen time. Men also get more lines, speaking twice as much as women overall, three times as much in films with male leads, and almost twice as much with films with in films with male and female co-leads. Again, it is only in the few films with female leads where male and female characters drew even on screen time. This imbalance is not just found in films and TV, it's everywhere. I think that is so interesting and I'm definitely gonna do a episode on the media and the film because like male gaze, like, and that's the thing, like these women that she's talking about having leads, well not leads, but like, not appearing as much, not having as much line. Usually when they do, they're literally used for male gaze of the audience. So even when women are in the films, you know, they're freaking being used for the men watching. Okay, so the next bit I want to mention is about the amount of women who have made, like, 
historical changes and founded things or invented things but the credit goes to men sometimes that's to do with the women at the time knowing that they wouldn't get known for it so they let their husband or brother claim it or it's just being claimed by a man you know without being allowed so this says at the turn of the 20th century award-winning british engineer physicist i can't say that (laughs) an inventor hertha arayton arayton remarked that while ever is overall and notoriously hard to kill an error that ascribes to a man what was actually the work of a woman has more lives than a cat she was right Textbooks still routinely name Thomas Hunt Morgan as the person who discovered that sex was determined by chromosome rather than environment, despite the fact that it was Nettie Stevens' experiments on mealworms that established this, and despite the existence of correspondence between them, where Morgan writes to ask Steve details of her experiment. Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin's discovery that the sun is predominantly composed of hydrogen is often credited to her male supervisor. Perhaps the most famous example of this kind of injustice is Rosalind Franklin, whose work she had concluded by her rectory experiments and unit cell measurements that DNA consisted of two chains and a phosphate backbone led James Watson and Francis Crick, now Nobel Prize winning household names, to discover DNA. None of this means, oh, okay, so it talks about something else, but the historically widespread practice of attributing women's work to men made it much harder for women to fulfil the bank's requirements. So that's talking about the Bank of England because this journalist, Caroline, um, she actually took, she, like, said to the Bank of England, I think she might have told them to court or just put up an argument that they need women on the banknotes and they argued that the banknote has to have a historical figure that oh my god has to be a key figure from the past the person must have a broad name recognition and have good artwork not be controversial and have made a lasting contribution which is universally recognised and has enduring benefits. So they came so like it's the it's the gender data gap that means the women aren't on it. Like it's not that the women didn't do things, it's that women didn't get the credit or you know, it just didn't so annoying. Um, what else is there here? This is literally off from the introduction. Um, there is a, actually, the first chapter, the first part, sorry, is on daily life, and the first chapter is on, can snow clearing be sexist? And that talks about how in Sweden, they had, like, there was, like, this joke or something about snow clearing being sexist or something, and then it actually turned into them recognising that they need to like women were disproportionately affected by snow clearing not being done on the pavements so there was like a rise in number of injuries and like 
people being admitted to hospitals and they didn't know why and then they you know when you look at the different routes that women and men do because women are more likely to do uncared work unpaid work they're more likely to do numerous trips and they're more likely to walk so public transport they're more likely to you know go to and from more whereas men are more likely to go to work one on they're also more likely to use cars but sorry i'm getting distracted but women are more likely to walk which meant they were being affected by the pavements not being cleared rather than the roads that was like a summarization but you should just get the book guys and then it talks about a lot on transport and how transport as i just said is not designed for women because women have different transport routes to men because they do unpaid care on yeah unpaid care um, and then there's a section on called the long friday which i don't know why it's called that what was this one about um i need to stop there's also a whole section in the chapter called the henry higgins effect which talks about uniform it talks about how a military uniform is not made to support for, it's not made for a women's body they have to wear a, like a male standard um uniform and also with like the backpacks you have to wear in the army or just general you know like the massive rucksacks women's bodies are not made like men's women carry like a lot more strength in their hips whereas men carry in their upper body in their shoulders so these bags are weighing down and women's shoulders aren't as strong whereas they need more of it to be tucked around their hips so they're getting more injuries i think it's pelvic fractures yeah yeah so this says until 2013 when three raf recruits which is the royal air force the uk's royal air force um one of them had been medically discharged after suffering four pelvic fractures, challenged his practice in court. Um, women in the British Armed Forces were forced to match male stride length. Since it's, sorry, I'm thinking, but basically they had to match male stride length when they were walking, which women's bodies can't do that, so they were putting more pressure on their body. Um, but I don't think they have to anymore. They took them to court and changed it, which is good. And it also talks about paramedics and stuff and just the assumption that women's bodies, you know, can fit into male stuff, but we don't have the same body newsflash. Sorry, I'm getting annoyed right now. Okay, guys, I'm going to leave it there because I feel like it's just going to get a bit messy if I just read from chapters. But I will probably do another episode where I do the other half maybe or maybe or just like another book like i'm definitely gonna do this again with other books but i need to finish this one basically <laughs> i've never finished it and it's so insightful though like please read it or just read something and try to like encourage people around you especially men to read things too like that is so important education so or even not even a book, like a podcast, because it's so easy to listen to a podcast. I have learned so freaking much from podcasts. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I'm sorry if it was a little bit shit, but...
yeah, I hope it wasn't. <laughs> I will see you guys next Tuesday. Bye.